Another presidential primary season sweeps through our country like a tornado. Storm-chasing reporters follow politicians who fancy themselves president. Primaries are chaotic, often comical, but it's how we do democracy, the way we pick the leader of the free world. I'm Barrett Golding with Hearing Voices from NPR, the best of public radio, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This week, it's Prime Candidates, Portraits of Past Presidential Primaries. We begin in January 1980. Carter was president. Dozens of people lusted in their hearts for his job, which made for a classic political tale told to us by David Puxta, a high school student in a small mill town. Claremont, New Hampshire. It's called the city where the work gets done. Tremont Square sits right in the heart of it. Six or seven streets run together here. Once in a while, we'll manage to even get a traffic jam. Tremont Square's place is what we like to call revitalized. You know, new sidewalks, park benches. We even renovated the old opera house over there. Years ago, they had me operators. About 14,000 people live here in Claremont. Pretty much a factory town, textiles, steels, paper, that sort of stuff. We know a lot about hard work, low wages, and long winters. And we know a lot about politics, too. Around the square is a city hall and chamber of commerce over there. We got a pet shop and a bookstore, a place to buy shoes. On the corner of Broad Street, Osha's Market. Very good. Yeah. I hear this is one of the oldest and finest stores in the community. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hi, Senator. Did I get my nephew, Chris? This is Chris Kelly. Oh, hi. How are you doing? Well, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, you look pretty confident. <laughs> and uh, what's the big priority once you get there? I think it's basically the restoration of our economy. I think the... I think in... Uh, well, I think... Uh, Domestically, it's the economy, high interest rates, high rates of inflation. Maybe uh, get some information up to you that spells out how we can get to those goals. So that then, okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very, very, very much. Very, very nice to meet you. Nice yeah. to see you. Thank you. We'll see you later. What's your name? Can I get a panel? Hi, did you get your invitation to meet Governor Brown at the Pleasant Restaurant at lunch today? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, ma'am. Did you get your invitation to meet Governor Brown at the Pleasant Restaurant today at noon? Oh, well, thank you. About this time during primary season, most people want to become president and feel some kind of urge to come visit this little town of Claremont. Tremont Square here, jam-packed with politicians, campaign volunteers, TV crews, Secret Service, college kids, busloads of reporters, and black limousines. Okay, next to one of those. All right. Hello, sir. I think I better get my coat here if I'm going to... This is your uh, first visit to Claremont, Governor Brown? Yeah, I'm here giving people a choice for president. I think there's an energy office in town. Is there there an energy office, Lou? We might want to go visit it. All right, better go over and say hello. Hello, sir. How are you? Governor Brown, California. What? You recognize me? You made up your mind who you're going to vote for yet? Well, I don't know yet. (laughs) You don't know? I don't know. we need a change down there in Washington? I sure do. I think I can make it. I'm not part of that mess. Well, if you get in there, I hope you do it. Hello, Governor Brown. How are you? Very happy to meet you. Nice we to sure see you. Delighted you're well, here in Claremont. Well, I'm at it. Can you get me ten votes each and we'll multiply? Hello? How are you? Welcome back to Claremont. Where was I, when was I here last? What? Oh, you were here at Stevens High School a few weeks ago and before Stevens that. Stevens High School, right? Yeah. They're coming down. Here's, one. Here's somebody who wants to sign up. What do you think of Claremont? I love it. I've only been here a few minutes, but I like it. Sign this person up. My name is uh, Bill Gallagher, and I'm, I'm from Claremont here, and uh, I'll tell you point blank that I'm concerned about nuclear power. I'm afraid of it. it. Our electric bills are going up constantly, trying to pay for a nuclear plant that isn't even finished. And I think this baloney with big nuclear power plants is a thing of the past, and I'm glad of it. Well, uh, I uh, strongly oppose the licensing of Seabrook, and my position is 
quite different than Carter. I have been working to provide an alternative to energy is probably the, the biggest issue all the candidates want to latch on this year. Last primary, about 10% of the people had wood stoves. This time it's about 65%. Cost of home heating oil doubled in the last year and it's still rising. One guy in town figured out how to heat a furniture factory by using the sawdust from the machines. And you see a lot of big vans outside the houses pumping in insulated foam. Ken Lewis just opened up first gas hall pump in Claremont. Little help from uh, Mayor Puxter and Howard Baker. Mayor Puxter, he's a supporter of Bush. But he comes out for all the candidates. There we go. Mayor, is this your car? No, it's not. It's, I wish it were. Mine's parked over here. Okay. This is nice to be on hand for a big first like this. Over 25% of our workforce uh, works outside of Claremont and rely on transportation and travel, and this gas hall could be uh, a good thing for the entire area. Well, that's an important step. It really is, Mayor. Um, would it be possible for you to just hold that pump into the tank as to put a couple shots of gas hall into the car? Well, I don't know why not. If somebody will... He doesn't even have to pull, pull the handle. Just hold it over there. Well, if I'm going to hold it over there, we're going to have tr truth and advertising. Now, I'm going to turn this thing on, and it's going to squirt all over me, isn't it? Have you already got it full? It's great. Beautiful. Mr. Baker, sir, how about a big smile? There we go. That's another first in the campaign. What does it mean to your selling of gas hall and to the Claremont energy situation that Senator Baker came here today? Well, it certainly got uh, media coverage, but the the important thing, a consumer of gas hall can, can do the same driving he did before and only use 90% of the gasoline. I guess I'm one of the first to get gas hall. I am a, a very good friend of Ken Lewis here. We're both Rotarians, and I thought that I would be able to, as a businessman myself, lend moral support. Okay, George. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Congressman John B. Anderson. Thank you, George. Thank you very much, George, and uh, President Tony, members of the Rotary Club. Rotary Club. We got one down on yes. Broad Street there. I had been get about, though, 66 members. Mostly businessmen. They do a lot of good stuff. Rotarians don't really mind candidates stopping by for lunch. But they're not so crazy about the old TV cameraman. I think 68, uh, Eugene McCarthy, spoke at the Rotary Club. They had a big flap. It was Claremont where we had kind of a showdown between the television press and the Rotarians. And it was over the question of whether they'd let them set up television cameras while I was giving the speech. And the head of the Rotarians decided that, that it would clutter things up and get in the way of the Rotarians listening to the speech. And he ruled that the press could come in and the television people could, but they couldn't bring their equipment. got to be a great confrontation. Herb Kaplow for the television press saying that it was a violation of the First Amendment and freedom of the press and the Constitution of the United States. And the head of the Rotarians pulled out the rules of the Rotary Club and it established that the Rotarians had absolute control over who was allowed to come to their meetings. And so the handbook of the Rotarians prevailed over the Constitution. Okay, you ready for the ticket drawing here? Will you have Representative Anderson make the draw for us? I'll have Mrs. Anderson. She probably is lucky. The number, the winning number is one, three, five. Three. I, I oh! 
Looks like Senator Anderson's wife won the big jackpot down there. Ten big ones. Sullivan County, the two pre predominant organized groups, uh, uh, the unions that are affiliated with the AFL-CIO and the Congress of Claremont Senior Citizens. Earl Borden runs a Congress of Claremont Senior Citizens, one of the best organization groups in Claremont. Last September they opened up the Senior Congress Park, a new apartment building in the outskirts of town, better known as Earl's Paradise. It's got a game room, widescreen TV, greenhouse, arts and crafts. And five buses. Great place to live. Only requirements can't be too young and can't be too rich. Earl is an old socialist and political hustler. On the right of this wire, as I said, the senator's coming in so he can go around easily and have quick access to the lectern. And the audience will be coming in on the left side of this wire to sit in the chairs as they're laid out there. And if there's an overflow, they can sit out here. Well, I usually go in the door and I'll rap at the door. And they usually, all, all of them know me. And I'll say, gee, did you know Kennedy's coming down this afternoon? They'll say, oh, yeah, but we didn't. What time? And we tell them. So they'll say, well, gee, I have no way to go down or I don't feel good. We'll say, well, it's all right. Have your dinner early. We'll have somebody come up and we'll take you down. We'll help you up and we'll bring you back. And they're glad to know it because some of them can't get out, you know. They still forget, you know, our minds aren't the same as they were when we were younger. So you have to remind them two, three times, like myself, <laughs> I forget. It's too bad we don't get more and more of these, because that's the only way we can get these people out. They really go for it. Then we have pictures taken, and of course we put them up, just like we do our grandchildren's pictures, and everybody's excited over it. I have Miss Carter's picture on my, on my desk, which I'm excited. Yeah. Please be in order. I want to be as brief as I can, but I want to welcome you, all of you, and the senator here to Senior Congress PAC. A low-income senior housing project is a result of HUD's 202. And on your behalf, and on behalf of the Congress of Claremont Senior Citizens, I welcome Senator Ted Kennedy. The purpose of the primary should be, it seems to me, to afford... Both the candidates the opportunity to say what they think you, and the electorate to have a chance to hear it and ask questions. But unfortunately, the primary in New Hampshire and the caucuses in the early states have become media games. And I think that's a bad thing. That uh, obviously a lot of people are too shy to ask questions of a candidate in front of uh, 16 different national TV stations and 46 different newspaper reporters. So the, the thing you do is that likely to happen that those people who have serious questions who would like to ask them are intimidated from doing so. I suspect it don't make so much difference to young people who are used to the world of, of rock and uh, psychedelic colors and flashing lights. But it's a little dilemmating to seniors to sit there and try to listen to what Mrs. Cat is saying and somebody's walking around with a light beam to, in front of you and you're more concerned about what's happening somebody's going to hit you with a camera on the head than you are about what she's saying. You've got to find some way so that you don't interfere with the mass coverage of what people who are running for important offices are saying and the coverage they get, but in such a way that you don't destroy that, that intimate relationship that you can build between the people and the candidate. Congratulations to the boys' varsity and junior varsity basketball teams on their victory against Pelham this last Friday. Introducers for Governor Reagan, Senator Kennedy, and Senator Baker, please report to the auditorium at 8 o'clock this morning for practice. Oh, if you want my honest opinion about it, the best political shows in Claremont right here at Stevens High, thanks to our uh, civics teacher, John Scranton. He's got this primary business down to a science. We make phone calls, write letters, and then when the candidates come, he's got everybody positioned where they should be. Ushers and people who pass out pamphlets, put up posters, or people who are standing out there parking cars. That's my job. We have fun out there. We get to escort the candidate in, secret service. 
We learn everything there is to know about them down to the shoe size. When we first started this particular process, we began with an assembly of about 500, perhaps 600 individuals. We started with only two political figures. And now we're talking about assemblies of 1,500 to 2,000 individuals. We're talking about things like worrying about is the candidate left-handed or right-handed and where should we put the glass of water on which side of the podium. So while some of us might, as adults, stand in awe of a presidential political candidate, I think many of the students feel, I want to really know what this person is all about. And I want to know specifically what kind of contributions this person can make to my lifestyle. They, they have the, I know there's a great deal of literature being put out, and much of it is based on superstition, but do you know that a, the smoke from a coal-burning plant releases more radioactivity into the air than comes from a nuclear power plant? Coal, actually, coal-burning coal releases radioactivity. One more question, please. One more. Well, I just saw a red, red right there. The boycott of the, of the Summer Olympics. Yes, I believe when you stop to consider the spirit in which the Olympic Games were born, thousands of years ago in Greece, they were so torn by strife and constant wars that they could And then we'll move those later, okay? Jeff? Can we get you over there behind the mic so that we can uh, get you to practice that in a few minutes? What I want is, is for you just to get used to what the acoustics are going to sound like now that this back wall is off here. Okay? All right. Eye to eye contact. The eye contact. Eye contact. You can start over here. You can look down at your dignitary section. Look over here toward the press section. Look up in there in the balcony. Out in here. And up into this balcony. Okay? Okay. Today, it is our privilege to have with us a man who has served and worked for our country for many years. A little bit slower. The tone is good. Just slow it down. Just a hair, Jeff. Well, I, I think one of the things that we try to get into is a tremendous amount of detail. We work on everything from voice modulation, voice projection, right on through eye contact trying to get the student to understand that even though it, this is in a setting that they are not used to, that they can handle it. And when they do handle it, you can almost see the swelling inside of them as of pride. And this is really satisfying to us as human beings and educators. And it's because of his past record, I believe that this man could bring about economic prosperity and peace to our country. It is with great pleasure that I present to you Ambassador George Bush. Thank you very much. That's great. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, for that very generous, warm introduction. You know, what you got to do in life is get a good person with you, and that makes a big difference. That helps a lot. When Jeff sticks his neck out for me and helps in political organization... Well, you know, you get them up close and personal, and you get more of an energy when they're here than you do if you're just seeing them on the TV and that kind of gets you motivated now so that you're gonna know what's going on later on. It sort of brings out the other points of the political process like before this I might have thought like well if I can't be a senator or if I can't be a representative then I'm not gonna be in politics but through this we realize that you know there's campaigning, there's security, there's publicity, there's so many other parts of campaigning and everything that a person can get involved without having to go to Washington. The following are the results of the presidential preference poll held yesterday. This consists of a mixed group of adults in the community, faculty members, and students of various ages. On the Democratic side, out of a total of 154 votes, Governor Brown received 33 votes, 21.4% of the total cast for Democratic votes. President Carter received 72 votes, 46.7%.
You notice the black limousines never get slush on them. The old TV camera crew cars, they get slush on them. Police cars never get slush on them. Politician cars, they never get slush on them. Ordinary cars, they get slush on them. Claremont was produced in 1980 by Larry Massett, Art Silverman, and Betty Rogers. The narrator was David Puxta, then of Stevens High School in Claremont, New Hampshire. You are hearing voices from NPR. These voices are some candidates who never made it past the 2008 Super Tuesday primaries. It's time for me to step, step aside so that history can, so that, so that uh, history can blaze its path. I think that comes from the great American philosopher Yogi Berra, right? It's not over until it's over. It's over. There's some people who, who thought it was all going to be done tonight. But it's not all done tonight. We're going to keep on battling. We're going to go all the way to the convention. We're going to win this thing, and we're going to get to the White House. I'm the conservative, period. If you look at consistency on Second Amendment, lower taxes, uh, if you look at consistency on human life amendment, marriage amendment, strong national defense, things that matter to conservatives, those are not views that I just invented in order to run for president. Those are the views that I have had and have actually done something about during 10 and a half years as a government. You know, Barack is a friend of mine. He'll be a friend of mine when this is over, no matter what happens. You know, one of us will change history. And seeing the two of us together is so... That's the Super Tuesday Mixdown with the music of Robert Wyatt. It's by Peter Beauchamp from a series Presidential Shortcuts. Coming up, Sarah Val marvels as the media spins myths out of misquotes. That's in a minute when we return with Prime Candidates from HearingVoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR... This is HearingVoices.com. You are hearing voices. We're back on the campaign trail with some prime candidates, portraits of past presidential primaries. What the candidates say comes to us condensed and filtered through a pool of reporters. What we hear is mostly what those media middlemen tell us, and sometimes they, and so we, hear wrong. During the 2000 primary season, Sarah Val sat in a New Hampshire schoolroom. The lesson she learned? was pay attention. It all started when Joanne McGlynn's media literacy class at Concord High School invited all the presidential candidates to speak. Known to loiter in New Hampshire ceaselessly before the state's primary elections, a whopping 50% of the eight major candidates accepted. Alan Keyes, Orrin Hatch, Gary Bauer, and Al Gore. They were asked to speak on the subject of school violence, not just because of the killings at Columbine, 
but also because a Concord High School student was killed at school a couple of years ago. Gore spoke to the student body on November 30, 1999, and, contrary to conventional wisdom regarding his charisma deficiency, he was a hit. Students Lucas Gallo, Ashley Pettengill, and Alyssa Spellman recalled the event. He wasn't as stiff as, like, people say he was. He comes out, like, takes his jacket off or whatever. He walks around, you know, like, he asks for audience participation. He talks to the audience. There was a question that said, uh, what do you like to do for fun? And he uh, mentioned that he liked The Simpsons. He kind of understood that we are people, we are kids, but we're, we're not dumb. We understand what's going on, and he respected that. I mean, he was still gore, I mean, you know, but he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't quite, quite as stiff as, like, you know what I mean? He didn't just get up and talk like the other candidates did. He's kind of a neat speaker to see. While the students were impressed by Gore's easygoing manner, his form, Joanne McGlynn was pleased with his content, the way he talked about school violence. He, he was very careful, I think, to describe the complicated nature of what might have caused what happened at Columbine. He didn't say it is just because those two boys played video games. He used a little um, analogy about when you catch a cold or when you don't. And he said that some kids in this, in this auditorium had the insulation of a loving family, of teachers that cared about them, of a supportive school system, and said they perhaps were insulated from some of these outside forces and as be, and, and therefore were immune from committing those kinds of acts. Then, during the question and answer period, something happened that seemed unremarkable at the time. Hello, my name is Shane Fletcher, and I want to say, ask you a question. Do you think that, um, how do you get students to get involved in more politics? Hmm. Um, he answered in, in a very lengthy response. He, he thought for a moment, paused, and said, I know there's a lot of cynicism in the country right now, and he said, especially among young people. He said, I, I think that it's caused by a number of things. He said, one of them may be that we need campaign finance reform. And he went on and talked about how he supported McCain-Feingold. He then said, but I think you kids should look in the mirror. I think that leaders can make a difference, but I think you also have to examine your own hearts. We are so privileged to live in this country. If that sounds corny to you, you should examine that attitude. Seriously. Think about South Africa. They just recently became a democracy. When they had their first election, you know what the percentage turnout was? It's like 95%. People waited in lines to vote that were seven miles long. Here we have a constantly declining voter turnout. I think it's because a lot of people feel like they cannot make an individual difference, but you can. So he challenged them um, to get involved, and then he said, let me tell you a little story. Now I'm going to play you that little story. In the days that followed Gore's appearance, this story was twisted, distorted, and ultimately more fought over than a piece of Jerusalem real estate, which is why I am going to play what he said in its entirety. Let me tell you a quick story. Twenty years ago, I got a letter from a, from a high school student in West Tennessee about how the water her family was drinking from a well tasted funny. She wrote me how her grandfather had a mysterious ailment that paralyzed part of his body that she was convinced was related to the water. Then her father also became mysteriously ill. People thought she was uh, imagining things. We investigated, and what we found was that one mile from her home, a, a chemical company had dug a big trench, and they were dumping millions of gallons of hazardous chemical waste into the ground. It had seeped in, down into the water table and contaminated her family's well and the wells of other families in that uh, rural area. 
I called for an inv a congressional investigation and a hearing. I looked around the country for other sites like that. I found a little place in upstate New York called Love Canal. Had the first hearing on that issue and Toon Teague, Tennessee. That was the one you didn't hear of. But that was the one that started it all. We passed a, a major national law to clean up hazardous dump sites. And we had new efforts to stop the practices that ended up poisoning water around, around the country. We've still got work to do, but we've made a huge difference. And it all happened because one high school student got involved. The night after the speech, Joanne McGlynn was at home and a friend called her asking if she'd seen the New York Times. He said, did you notice the Love Canal comment? And I said, um, I said, well, I remember he told a story about Love Canal. I said, what well, kind of is, you know, the Times says that Gore's taking credit for finding Love Canal. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> I got a bit nervous. I thought, is that the way this story is going to be covered? Let me read from Catherine Seeley's article in the New York Times on December 1st. In a 17-paragraph piece about one day in the Gore campaign, four paragraphs are devoted to the Concord High appearance. Seeley quoted Gore, I found a little place in upstate New York called Love Canal. I had the first hearing on that issue in Toon, Tennessee, he said, but I was the one that started it all. Curiously, the Washington Post made the exact same mistake. Also on December 1st, Post staff writer Cece Connolly quoted, I was the one that started it all. We came in one class and Ms. McGlynn was like, you guys are not going to believe this. And she wrote up the, the quote on the board and she said, did he say this? And we were like, what? what? Did he say this? I was the one that started it all. And then we were like, no, he was talking about the girl. That event started it all. And, and then we looked at all the newspapers and we were like, wow. She then played us back the tape that our um, TV production class had, had made. And the actual quote was, that was the one that started all referring to the city in Tennessee. We definitely said, we have to do something about this. And we were definitely, I think, shocked that, wow, that one little word, one little word, you know, totally changed the context and totally changed what everyone thought about it. After the Times and the Post, the Love Canal mistake snowballed. U.S. News and World Report listed, I was the one that started it all as one of its quotes of the week. And then there was the following little roundtable on This Week with Sam Donaldson and Cokie Roberts, among the two hosts, George Stephanopoulos and Bill Kristol. Love Canal. Yeah, he's got a, you know, Gore again revealed his Pinocchio problem. Says he was the, says he was the model for love story, created the internet, and this time he sort of discovered Love Canal. It was kind of a saturation. him saying that he, right. he discovered Love Canal I, when I, he had hearings on it after people months. had been evacuated. Yeah, I found a little place in upstate New York called Love Canal. I was the one that started it all. Two months after the late show with David Letterman dreamed up a list of the top ten other achievements also claimed by Al Gore. Number five. Well, do you ask out of early 90s recession by personally buying 6,000 t-shirts? <laughs> Number four, start in CBS Situation Comedy with Juan Valdez, entitled Juan for Al, Al for Juan. <laughs> Number three, was inspiration for Ozzy Osbourne's song Crazy Train. <laughs> Number two, came up with popular catchphrase, don't go there, girlfriend. <laughs> And the number one other achievement claimed by Al Gore gave mankind fire. Initially, the students were upset about the misquote. But the more they thought about it and the more they watched the misquote evolve, they were really flabbergasted by the misrepresentation of Gore's appearance at their school. He was trying to say that kids can make a difference. He was trying to say what so many high school kids in this country don't believe. He's running for president, so he has to add a little, he has to be a bit selfish and kind of boost his own, boost himself when he's speaking. But the message, they totally missed the point of the entire story that he told. He was trying to make it a clear point for us that we need to get involved and that we should and that we can, like, do something to help. And the media just, they didn't even mention the message that he was trying to explain or anything. The actual quote itself was, I think, completely innocent. It wasn't a, look how great I am, look what I did in Love Canal. It was a, look how great you can be. That's, that's what his message was, and that's what the papers overlooked. Mm -hmm. Well, what if I was this reporter and I said, 
um, I'm sorry, Miss. Yes, you're, you're right. I did misquote that. But so what? I still got the um, I still got the gist of what he was doing right. Maybe he was trying to inspire you. That's one part of what he was saying. But the second part of what he was saying is, um, I was the one who I was the one who brought this to fruition. I, Al Gore, look at me. I would say you know you're wrong. You're you're focusing on one little itty bitty microscopic thing that, you know, when misquoted can mean something completely different, but when quoted correctly, it, it means a great thing for, you know, democracy and things like that. If I can come clean on whom I identify with the most in this story, it isn't the students or their teacher. I identify with the New York Times reporter Catherine Seely, who misheard a word. She was the one that started it all. I am convinced that this woman, whose job it is to follow around a man with two jobs, running for president and being vice president, is beyond overworked. I know this partly because the first chance she got to return my phone call about all of this was at 1.15 in the morning. This poor reporter, this gatekeeper of democracy, was getting her first break of the day in the middle of the night. And considering that I am a writer who has publicly misspelled names, confused Sinclair Lewis with Upton Sinclair, and gotten who knows how many things wrong over the years, I am one pot who should not be calling the Grey Lady Black. Both the New York Times and the Washington Post did publish corrections, and this is what Seely told me. About the students of Concord High, she said, These kids are well-intentioned. They're paying attention. We did get one word wrong. But they are magnifying what happened. Gord did say, I found a little town in upstate New York called Love Canal. She continued, He called the AP in Buffalo the next day and apologized for presuming to take credit for that. The journalists were, in fact, correct when they said that Love Canal was already a front-page story, an official national emergency months before Al Gore ever held hearings. But, as you heard yourself, Gore never claimed to have been the one to have first brought Love Canal to national attention. He only claimed to have held the first congressional hearings on it. I think what shocks me, though, is that there seems, on some parts of the media that we've talked to, very little remorse. That surprises me, you know, that it was just a word. I, I guess I have my own bias or perception as I look at the event. The week before Al Gore came, our entire school had to practice a lockdown procedure. Um, and a lockdown procedure is something I had never experienced except as a kid in Catholic school in Rhode Island, you know, in the early 60s. The nuns had us hiding under our desks, you know, to, or putting our heads down to protect us from nuclear fallout from when the Russians were going to bomb us. And now, in 1999, we are, uh, or we were in 1999, being asked to run through an event as though a sniper were out in the hallway. This came down as a recommendation from the state of New Hampshire, their safety um, planning group. And it just so happened that we had our first practice session the week before Al Gore came to Concord High School. So our principal came over the intercom and said, teachers, please implement the lockdown procedure. We knew ahead of time this was going to happen sometime during the next two days. I had to take my freshmen and move them away from the door, get them on the floor, turn their desks on their sides so they would be protected as much as they could be in case someone came into the room or attempted to come into the room with a gun. We had to be silent. I had to go out in the hallway and lock the door um, and grab any kid who might have been returning from the bathroom, hoping this kid was not the person that we needed to worry about, grab that kid, pull them in, and ask my students to be quiet. I had to tell you it was very unsettling. The thought that one of ours one of our students could be out in the hallway trying to harm us is it's it's a very complicated emotional response uh, many of us were very uncomfortable during the lockdown um, but couldn't show that to the kids wanted to show the kids that they were safe and not to worry so my 
I thought Gore did a good job talking about this issue. I thought this was an issue that should be one of the prime ones in our presidential campaign. And I feared immediately when I heard Love Canal that somehow what had happened at Concord High would become a joke. And in some ways, that, did, that is what happened. Well, let's talk about Al Gore and have some fun. We've gone into the serious part of the program. Now here's the hilarious part. Al Gore keeps taking a little bit of truth and building it up to, into this sort of uh, 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 epical role in history he's played. You know, the, this is Al Gore. It just makes me sad that the wise guy attitude seems to dominate the press right now. And that's what I pick up on. Not to pick on Chris Matthews, but he spent two nights having a blast with this story about Love Canal. You know, getting a big chuckle out of, you know, Dan Quayle may not be able to spell potato, but now Al Gore is going to claim he invented it. You know, Chris Matthews refers to Al Gore as Zelig. Well, there's Al Gore. What is it, the Zelig guy who keeps saying, I, I was the main character in Love Story, I invented the internet, I, think I has, invented Love Canal. I think he has Edmund Morris writing his <laughs> speeches for him. Uh, well, maybe where Chris works, that seemed like a funny thing to say. Um, but where I work, it didn't seem that funny. Where I work, <laughs> hiding someday, you know, pretending to be hiding behind desks with kids, afraid that, you know, the Klebold and Harris are outside my door, it didn't seem that funny. It really didn't seem that funny. And I'm not saying our candidates should be untested, unquestioned, uncriticized. I'm not saying that in the least. But I am saying if that's all we do, and if all we do is make fun of them, then we're losing something too, I think. I feel like some reporters are just printing stuff that doesn't promote anybody anymore. They're just saying what they did wrong. I asked 16-year-old Ashley Pettengill what we lose when the press omits descriptions of how a candidate might actually make a good president. I, I think we miss out on every reason to vote for them. At Concord High School, a politician actually spoke inspiringly and connected with the audience, which, to me, is news. But no reporter reported this. And in fact, these kind of moments are routinely overlooked by the press. They're barely part of our national political discourse. But why? For one thing, so much political speech is lies, spin, and misrepresentation, it's understandable that journalists report these inspiring moments skeptically, if at all. And beyond that, the way most of the press works is pretty much as you suspect. Representatives of the news media carry around storylines of the candidates in their heads, and reporters light up when reality randomly corroborates these pictures. One of the great mysteries of modern politics is which storylines get told and which get ignored. And in the primary season, that storyline is still up for grabs. John McCain's storyline, Hero, threatened to become hypocrite in light of his helping a major donor with the FCC. Not long after George W. Bush flunked a foreign policy pop quiz, it appeared his name tag at the correspondence dinner was destined to read, Hello, my name is Dunderhead. Gore's storyline, that he's a bore, is spiced up by this secondary storyline, that he's a braggart, that he takes credit for ridiculous things, for inventing the internet, and for being the real-life Oliver of love story. So, of course, the Love Canal misunderstanding screamed to reporters because it brought this particular fuzzy snapshot of Gore into sharper focus. It is telling that both the reporter for the Times and the one for the Post heard the exact same word incorrectly, almost as if that was what they wanted to hear. Teacher Joanne McGlynn says that this is a seductive impulse for both reporters and voters. This uh, editor for U.S. News and World Report called and said that, and this was after he admitted he was sorry that they had published a misquote. Um, he told me a story about George Bush Sr., running for president in 1992. And I remember the story myself that uh, George Bush went into a supermarket and was stunned to find a scanner 
I guess was used to old cash registers and suppose and, and made a comment that showed he was surprised to see a scanner. What this gentleman from U.S. News and World Report told me was actually the pool reporter got that story wrong, that it was actually some kind of new scanner that Bush remarked on. But that comment then became sort of the symbol or the iconic moment for Bush being out of touch with middle America. And that was it. I think that might have hurt Bush big time. Now, it turned out, not if, if, if this man is right from U.S. News and World Report, not to be accurate. Now, if it wasn't accurate, was it not true? I mean, was Bush out of touch with middle America? It's the same thing going back to Gore. Does Gore take credit? It, it makes me question, and I have to say, I am going to keep my eyes open um, in a way I hadn't before, and particularly when things automatically fit my mindset. I'm going you know, to be a little more careful. I mean, I, it didn't surprise me that maybe President Bush didn't know about a scanner. But if he did, it's too bad that got out there. It's not fair. I looked at Joanne McGlynn's syllabus for her media literacy course, the one she handed out at the beginning of the year stating the goals of the class. By the end of the year, she hoped her students would be better able to challenge everything from novels to newscasts that they would come to identify just who is telling a story and how that person's point of view affects the story being told. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this lesson has been learned. In fact, just recently, a student came up to McGlynn and told her something all good teachers dream of hearing. The girl told the teacher that she was listening to the radio, singing along with her favorite song. And halfway through the sing-along, she stopped and asked herself, what am I singing? What do these words mean? What are they trying to tell me? And then this young citizen of the Republic jokingly complained, I can't even turn on the radio without thinking anymore. Democracy and Things Like That was written by Sarah Val and produced by Alex Blumberg and Ira Glass of This American Life, thislife.org. What we try to do is help our clients communicate as effectively as possible to strip away what is unnecessary in language, what is unclear and misleading. In other words, the words. <laughs> Douglas Flyshit thinks to understand political speech, you need to read between the lines, really between the words. He runs the Language Removal Service. Their 2003 California Recall Project processed recordings of all the state's gubernatorial candidates and gave the world this first language-free political debate. Now, the California Recall Project began on a kind of a hunch that although the candidates appeared not to be saying anything, that perhaps underneath the political doublespeak, there was a real vibrant core to each of the candidates. What we've done is to stage, if you will, the first language-free political debate. Of course, most people are interested in Arnold, the Terminator. And what's perhaps most interesting is that at times he stutters, and it sounds almost like a machine gun. Ariana Huffington is perhaps one of the most interesting cases in my experience with language removal. She does not stammer or hesitate, ever. There are no ums. There's only the inexorable progress of her breath. And Lieutenant Governor Bustamante. Uh, 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 uh,
That's languageless speech from former California Governor Gray Davis. This California recall language removal piece was produced by Larry Massey. I feel change in the air. What about you? I will work hard to ensure that the conservative philosophy and principles of our great party will again win the votes of a majority of the American people. I see an America where our economy works for everyone, not just those at the top. Our time has come, our movement is real, and change is coming to America. Every time I've been asked over the past year who I would support in the Democratic primary, my answer has always been the same. I'll support the candidate who inspires me, who inspires all of us, who can lift our vision and summon our hopes and renew our belief that our country's best days are still to come. The polls are just closing, and the votes are still being counted in cities and towns across America. But there is one thing that we do not need the final results to know. Our time has come. I see an America where we don't just provide health care for some people or most people, but for every single man, woman, and child. I will work hard to ensure that the conservative philosophy and principles of our great party will again win the votes of a majority of the American people and defeat any candidate our friends on the other side nominate. I feel change in the air. What about you? That's another Super Tuesday 2008 mix with music by Bruce Springsteen. It's from Peter Bashan's series Presidential Shortcuts. You can find it at mixedup.com and at the public radio exchange, prx.org. LanguageRemoval.com is the online home of the Language Removal Service. I'm Barrett Golding, and there's links to all the producers in this program at HearingVoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is hearingvoices.com.